I, I don't know about you, but all my life I've heard people say this, and I've said it a few times. Boy, you know what? When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask Jesus about. Anybody, anybody have those kind of things they want to talk to him about? Have a conversation with him. You know, I, I, I think just about everybody's kind of got an issue or something that, that they feel like, hey, you know, I really, I really wish uh, Jesus had talked more about this or that there had been more information about that. And I've got a few of those. Uh, I, have a, I have a feeling, though, uh, when we all meet Jesus, that those uh, conversations will be kind of unnecessary, don't you? Kind of think, okay, I, I get it now. And uh, so, uh, now, I, you know, my, I have one concern that, uh, you know, get to heaven, that the conversation will be, uh, G- uh, Cliff, Jesus needs to see you here for a minute. <laughs> that, that, that's the one I'm a little concerned about. <laughs> yeah, before we go in, uh, he's got a couple of things he wants to talk to you about. Uh, whoo. So, uh, you know, uh, that, that's the danger. You know, I've always been a teacher of always sounding like you know what you're talking about. And then one of these days, I, I, you know, I've gone back and looked at some of my old sermons and I went, did I really say that? <laughs> did I really think that? So there will be some grace, I hope. Hey, turn to John 5, the Gospel of John. We're looking at another conversation. Uh, that. Je- by, by the way, if you're interested, the Gospel of John is uh, sort of interesting in that uh, some have suggested that the book has this sort of interview kind of characteristic to it. That Jesus meets a lot of people, and and they're in the other Gospels, but in the Gospel of John particularly, there's almost this kind of interview, this kind of meeting Jesus and dealing uh, with matters. And so uh, this is one of those conversations. Uh, uh, To be honest with you, I wish there would have been a little more. I wish there's a couple of issues here that I'd, I'd like to get cleared up a little bit better. But uh, this conversation uh, has uh, fascinated me uh, in the Gospel. Let me, let me set it up here a little bit in Gospel of John, chapter 5. We'll look at it. This is the third miracle that Jesus will do of five in the book of John. Uh, six if you count the resurrection, <laughs> which is pretty good. Uh, uh, you know, uh, Water to wine, healing of the nobleman's son we looked at last week. Uh, the healing of this lame person, the healing of the man born blind in nine, the raising of Lazarus in 11, and then again uh, the resurrection. But these, these are stacked up uh, pretty, pretty tight up here in, in the third chapter, the fourth chapter, the fifth chapter, the ninth chapter, the eleventh chapter, and then uh, the final uh, resurrection. So this is one of those signs that Jesus does. I told you... Uh, in, in, earlier that the word sign, semeon, is the Greek word that means something that really indicates something greater. A, a sign. When Jesus does a sign, He is doing something, and this is the third of five that He does. It's, it's something He does to indicate something greater. The most simple uh, uh, example I have is this. This thing on my finger is a sign or a symbol, supposed to mean, supposed to be, that I am committed to one person. And that's not me. I mean, it's in, to my wife, right? <clears throat> right? Yeah. Yeah. No, not. Yeah. I've met people like that. But, but, but this is, this certainly isn't the substance of it. This is the sign. It's, it's, it is to indicate something greater, a commitment to another person. So even in these miracles, as wonderful as they are and as, as great as they are, and we're glad to see them, uh, they, they really are indicating something else, something greater. 
something about who Jesus is, something about uh, what His life and ministry is about. So when we see these, we, we need to recognize them as signs, not just that Jesus is doing some kind of like a carnival barker, you know, hey, watch this, uh, you know, uh, but something to indicate that something greater is being indicated through this work. So well, let's start reading in John chapter 5. John chapter 5 now, and I'll read through here, and we'll, we'll get on this conversation about Jesus. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos, or four five porches. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water, and whoever first after the stirring up of the water stepped in was made well from whatever disease which had he been afflicted. A man was there who had been there ill for 38 years. Now just, you think about this, that in the day of Jesus, the average life expectancy was about 47. Uh, Didn't live a long time. Uh, accidents, illness, war, uh, all kinds of things. So you got a guy here been sick 38 years. Uh, this is a rather dramatic situation here. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been there a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you, li- do you wish to get well? Uh, I'm kind of thinking, okay, Jesus, uh, master of the obvious here. <clears throat> uh, we're going to look at this here in a minute. Though. I-, I think there's something to this. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It's the Sabbath, and it's not permissible for you to carry your pallet kind of missed the point, you know. I'm just saying, you know. We'll talk about these guys in a minute. But he answered and said to them, the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. They said to him, who is this man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know. He didn't know who Jesus was. He, He had no idea who it was. For Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, behold, You've become well. Do not sin anymore or continue sinning as the, we'll look at that, so that nothing worse happened to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working. I want you to underline that. that is so, that's an ironic statement here for a second. This is happening on the Sabbath, and Jesus said, my father is working. Now, and that's in the present tense. That means right now. My father is working until now, and I myself am working. Now, you've got to pick up the irony here. We'll come back and get it later. But this idea of working, of God himself working on the Sabbath uh, is an tr- uh, incredible irony. So I want to look at this, at this conversation in John, about what we, what we learn about Jesus. I've I, I wrestled with this about a topic and a title about this. It, it kept coming back to this, that in, in all of these stories, obviously, this could 
be the topic about what we learn about Jesus, but we learn things about Jesus and about ourselves. But I want you to look at this first of all on this first one. Number one, what we learn is that Jesus participated in the religious community of his of his day, and I kind of put there where he could. <laughs> Jesus participated in the religious community of his day where he could. And we, we know that there are lots of things Jesus here is opposed to, and we'll look at that. But notice here, it says here in verse 1, Jesus went up to the feast of the Jews in Jerusalem. Here and other New Testament passages, we see Jesus participating in the community of faith and the feast and, and all of those different matters. He participated in the community. Uh, there, there is something here I think we need to understand. Uh, Rabbi uh, uh, Abraham Heschel, who's a great uh, Old Testament scholar, said this, that Judaism teaches us to, a, to be attached to holiness in time. Listen to that again now. Judaism teaches us to be attached to holiness in time. To be attached to sacred events. To, to be attached to sacred events. You know, I think there's something that in our, if you will, our looseness or in our sometimes that, you know, we don't want to be rigid and we don't want to just be all religious, that we lose something sometimes when we don't remember to participate with the community in sacred moments. You know, we do that on Sunday. I, I, always, I was in a barber shop, I may have told you this years ago, and a, a guy who was an evangelist, I, I knew that because of the hairdo. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. He had the hair. He had the hair. And uh, he was in the barber chair, and I was sitting down reading something. And he's asking this guy, the barber, or the, I'm sorry, the barber asked him, you know, you're an evangelist, blah, blah, blah. You know, why, why do we have church on Sunday instead of Saturday? You know, like that. And he was being just, you know, uh, you know why? why? Here, here, guy went to barber school, not to seminary. He said, so he's, why do we do that? I, nobody's ever kind of cleared that up for me. But it was interesting. I'm just sitting there being nice. And I'm listening. <laughs> and uh, the guy says to him, well, what are you doing asking a question like that for anyway? And uh, he said, well, you know, I've all, I just always wanted to say, well, well, you know, we do. And, and, and that's the day we celebrate the Lord. And so the guy leaves, and then I'm up. And I just said to him, uh, you know the reason he answered like that, right? He doesn't know. <laughs> right? Pretty typical. He doesn't know. I said, we celebrate and have that day on, the, on Sunday because every Sunday is celebrating the Lord's resurrection. That's why we do that. It wasn't just some cheap trick to do. It wasn't, it's, it's that the first followers of Jesus believed that there was something sacred about that day to say, to celebrate. Now, you know, we do a big deal of that on Easter, right? How many times do we have that sacred place every Sunday where we come to church each Sunday to say, you know what, we're celebrating today? We're not celebrating Sunday. We're not, we're not just celebrating that we're having church. We're celebrating today as a community that this is the day that Jesus was raised from the dead. We need those sacred places. We need those. And Jesus goes up to that feast. You know, in my own life, I, 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 October the 22nd is a really special day in my life. Uh, God did something for me in 2003 that uh, I could just never duplicate. And every month on my calendar, on the 22nd of every month, that day comes up. And I pause uh, wherever I am and just take some time to say, Lord Jesus, I thank you. And Becky knows about that. J J Friday, July the 13th 
is a big day in my life. It's the day that I got a job at United Parcel Service going to seminary. It was a miracle. It really was. I know Dave. It was. It was. Dave doesn't think it was. It was a miracle. Dave worked for UPS. There were 5,000 applications in front of me, and they hired me like that. And it was the job that I got to go to seminary. So, so let me ask you something. Like Jesus here is going up to Jerusalem to the feasts. Do you have some days like that? That, that you, as a, 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 a Rabbi Heschel said, that attach it to holiness in time, sacred events. When you come to church, do you come on, did you come this morning? You know, I, I know I've told you that if you have little kids, the hour before church is the most unholy hour of the week. And driving to church, if you kids don't settle down. Remember, we have that magic gate out there in the parking lot. As soon as you go through that gate, come along, children. Let's go to the house of the Lord. <laughs> DHS would have hauled you in 30 minutes ago. <laughs> you know, do, do you come with that sense of the community that we come to celebrate like Jesus did? He came to celebrate a feast. There were lots of things Jesus couldn't get on with. I mean, he, there, We'll see this. <laughs> this whole Sabbath thing was really messed up. But what about those religious community celebrations that enrich our lives and remind us and cause us once again to sort of put down a marker and say on this day at this time this is what Jesus did for me or this is what he did for our church or this is what he did for our family I think sometimes we get so loose of this because we think well we're free when we're that we forget to have those kinds of markers in our life, and in our day. So I just want to ask you to consider this, that what we see in this conversation is that Jesus participated, uh, if you will, uh, in the community. Second thing here. i got five, so I'm moving. Second, Jesus moved past religious practices to ministry. Now, it's fascinating to me here when, when he, you know, he went up to the feast. By the way, I, I don't know if you know this or not. Maybe you do, but I love part of some of the things about Judaism is this that everything they ever do in the Old Testament is always a feast. <laughs> Except one, Day of Atonement. Got a fast on that day. But all the other ones are a party. It's a feast. It's a celebration. And I, I wonder again, have we lost some of that celebratory kind of nature as a community to come together to celebrate, to praise God? So, anyway, But Jesus moved past religious... So watch this. So now He's in Jerusalem, verse 2. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate... A pool, which is called in the Hebrew Bethesda. Some call Bethzada in Hebrew. There are several translations here. It's a little confusing about that. Having five porticos or five porches. Now, it's, it, it at least strikes me that very little is spoken about the feast. Jesus participated apparently. But what seemed to be the priority was ministry. That Jesus left the feast, left the celebration, if you will, to be involved. I mean, now I'm going to come back to this point later. I ask you, this. you know, I think there's a, I think there's a rhythm here. There's a rhythm here in life that we not only feast and celebrate with God, we not only go to those places, but we leave and go to minister. So many times, church and celebrations are an end in themselves. You know, I used to work in the parking lot. I know Jim Johnson did. I can tell you that a lot of this religion never gets out of the building. <laughs> Whoo! You ought to direct traffic out there once in a while. What happened to these holy people? <laughs> you know? 
You know, we go to the celebrate. Ooh, our God is an awesome God. He, you know, all that. Not against that. It's great. But man, you'll get run over by a Lexus like that. <laughs> They're not happy, right, Jim? Am I telling the truth? Jim, I'm telling the truth. Yeah, hey, it, right. And the problem is that sometimes that our feasting and our celebrating the community, as good as it is, never makes its way out to real people with real problems in real life. Look at Jesus. He, he, he goes there. Now, I want to show you a couple of pictures here. I took this one. I think I've mentioned I've been there. Uh, this is Israel. I, yeah. Hey, I go back tomorrow. I know everybody. Whew, I would. Uh, and probably some of y'all would send me, but don't do that. Um, I think, uh, well, I know. Let me say a couple things about this place, first of all. Uh, the, when you're reading the Bible, it has five porticos or five porches. It, a lot of people before about 1930 and 40 and 50s really thought the Bible was making this up. Because there was nothing in that area that resembled. And the idea of five porticos, I mean, it's got to be a rectangle, right? Or it's an octagon. And I don't have time to go into it, but the Jerusalem Museum has a rendition of it now that shows this is the exact thing what the Bible says. That in 1964, in excavation, they found this area. It's off by St. Anne's Church, by the Sheep Gate. And the, I don't remember going to the Sheep Gate. Dan, where, I remember going through the Lion's Gate and uh, went in there. And I'm standing here. Becky's on the side of me. Dan's over there somewhere. Uh, uh, Dan almost got in trouble being a, a guide without a license. So uh, we're looking at this, and this is looking down. These are some of the pillars here uh, that would hold this. And, and you stand there right by there, and you see the sheep. Now, you got to remember, Jerusalem kept getting built after it got destroyed. This is, we're up here, but this is the level that when Jesus was here. This place has been built on, built on, built on, built on. All the destruction in the Middle East, when a city gets torn up, they don't, you know, tear, clear it out. They just build on top of it. This is one of the arches that would have been into that pool area. It's unbelievable. And down here, there are steps that go down in these porticos. I, I just want to tell you this. Don't get shook up when you hear people talking about that the Bible's making this stuff up because it says that we haven't found it in archaeology yet. Let me tell you something. Just wait. They haven't excavated the entire Middle East yet. And they don't do it with a bulldozer. They do it with a toothpick and a paintbrush, you know. It takes them 47 years to do this. But this, this is now understood to be this area where those five porches and these huge pools of water came down. Here's another, a little bit better shot. Where, again, I'm up here taking this down, and you can see all the, see these great arches that people... I mean, this was a, this was a big pool. It's bigger than the pool in Garden City. They got a big swimming pool there. <laughs> they do. I'm not kidding you. I'm, it's one of the largest water, uh, uh, swimming pools in the world. It really is. It never has any water in it, but it's a big. <laughs> so, so, uh, so here's here's this place that the Bible says. So, so scholars would say, well, that's not true. Listen, let me tell you something. A guy named Mel, and I'm going to probably mess his last, but Nelson Gluck. That's why I pronounce it G L E U C K. Nelson Gluck, who's a who's a uh, 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 he's dead now. He was a Jewish rabbi, scholar. He actually uh, prayed the uh, uh, benediction prayer at JFK's inauguration. This guy, solid, wonderful scholar, said this. There has never been an archaeological discovery yet that has disproven the Bible. Never. Not one. Just give it some time. Just hang on. 
I could go through discovery after discovery real quick. Long time ago, the route of the Exodus was contested because none of the cities that are in the Bible were on any maps, you know. And people just, oh man, gave them all the kind of business about that, Beeve. And uh, just, uh, uh, just gave it to them. In the excavation of some of the temple or the uh, tombs of the pharaohs, they discover an ancient map of the ancient uh, 14th century dynasty. And they go around that map and every one of those cities are in order. Listen, archaeology doesn't ever, hasn't yet, discounted what the Scriptures are telling you. You can have great confidence in this. You can have incredible confidence because of the archaeology that attests to what the Bible says. So here's, here's what's going on here. So Jesus is here at this place. Beth, Bethesda, it's, uh, it, it, there's several uh, difficulties sometimes with translating Hebrew into Greek and other things like that. But it probably means this. Beth, or Bet, house, and Ezda is to become well. Zata or Zeo means bubbling water. Now, remember it says that there's this water that kind of moves around. We'll, we'll look at that. But this house or this place is either the house of healing. Some have called it the house of mercy. Others have called it the house of bubbling water or the house to become well. In other words, this is a huge place. I, I, I was going to get a picture from the uh, Jerusalem uh, uh, Museum but I'm, this thing covers a couple of acres. It's big. This is a place where they brought water in and people would go bathe and there was the thought or the idea of being made well. So here Jesus comes to this place. Isn't it interesting? He's in Jerusalem. Where does He go? The place where people are in need. Where does, where does He go? I mean, we've had a great time at the feast. Now let's go home and write postcards to people. <clears throat> no. We've had a great time at the feast. It's almost a side note in this passage. It's wonderful. It's great. Now let's go minister to people. I think that's the rhythm. That's the rhythm. That Jesus is now willing to say, I'm going to go where people are hurting. It's interesting. <clears throat> the only way that people, the, the Pharisees find out about this is a guy's walking out. It doesn't appear that they're there. It, does, it doesn't appear that they're there to try to help people or comfort them or encourage them. Jesus is willing here, if you will, to go to work. So it's the idea of ministry here. The idea of that. The difficulty with religious practices today often is that they end in themselves. I knew of a church that on the back wall, when you walked out of the church, had this sign. The service begins now. Interesting. The service begins when you're walking out. Oh, okay. Where does the service begin? Out there. Now, there's nothing wrong, again, with what happens in here. And I'm glad. I hope it's encouraging us and helping us. But do we have that same impulse? Do we have that same rhythm in life that whenever we're involved in great celebrations with God and with others in the community, which is so important, do we find our way to ministry? Now, I want to move on. Jesus did not try to correct everything before healing. This thing kind of really got a hold of me this week, and I, I, I wasn't even sure how to list it. Uh, <clears throat> Notice here it says, In this area laid a multitude that were sick, waiting for the moving of the waters. 
Now, you'll notice in your Bible that in some translations at the end of verse 3, there's a, there's a mark, a variant, that says this may not have been in the original text. I, I want to tell you something. Um, it doesn't change the meaning hardly at all. If you just jump over when Jesus said he had been sick for 38 years and he didn't want to get well, he said, I don't have anybody to put me in the pool when the water is stirred. Now, you know, people get, this is what we call textual criticism. That we understand that in some manuscripts, that end of verse 3 to the end of verse 4 is not there. It may be an attempt to harmonize what is said in 7 and 8. It's no big deal. Can I tell you this also? There is no book in antiquity anywhere that has as much research and study as the Bible. I'll give you an example. In the works of Plato that we all read in college, or we read the Cliff Notes. I did. <clears throat> I did. I read Badger, you know, I, when I read Dick, it was the best of times, the worst of times. I said, no, I'm not going with this. There are ten copies of the Dialogues of Plato. Ten. The Wars of Julius Caesar, there are about seven. The works of Homer, not Jethro, but Homer. <clears throat> I, can't, I can't ever not say that. I, I have no impulse control on that. <clears throat> The works of Homer, about 15 copies, which suggests that they're able to see the reliability based on these copies. Do you know how many manuscripts we have the New Testament only? 5,000. 5,000 manuscripts. There's no book in the entire history of antiquity that has been studied and referenced in depth. And I can just tell you this, working if you want to work through what we call a, a textual apparatus, that the changes or the differences in some of these manuscripts is absolutely negligible. It doesn't change anything. Occasionally, somebody say, well, let's just harmonize that. Make sure that. So this, <clears throat> this guy is here. These people are here. And the, the idea is there's an angel who comes and stirs the water up. And when he does, uh, if you get in, if you're the first one, you get well. Now, archaeologists have also gone to this site and wondered, uh, is the moving of the water based on the construction, which had, you had an upper pool and a lower pool? And the water would come here in the upper pool to the lower pool to move some of the dirt and junk. I, I remember, no kidding, when, when I got baptized in the Jordan a couple years ago, I thought, I'm getting in that. <laughs> I mean, it, was, it wasn't wonderful. There were fish and other, and people and, you know, really. I mean, I'm serious. I mean, just, you go, ooh, I don't, I don't know. This water was moving and running and, and it would clear it out. And there's some question, would there be a big move, uh, you know, uh, of that water and it would stir it up? And here, here's that people would think an angel did that. And their faith, looking to God. Think about this now. They're not looking to themselves. They're believing that heaven is involved in this. I mean, this may be superstition. You may look at it and think, well, this sounds goofy. But I want to suggest to you that Jesus knew, maybe, that there was no troubling of the water by an angel. It could be that this is, again, an artesian spring that would bubble up. But what, what, what's going on here is this, is that these people are trustfully looking to heaven for help. Think about it. They are trustfully looking to heaven for help. 
Is their theology goofed up? Perhaps. Is their understanding of how God works goofy? More than likely. But isn't it interesting that Jesus did not take it upon Himself to say, well now before I heal you, i got to get you straightened out here for a second. Before, before I can do anything, we've we got to get all this stuff straightened out. I want to knock all this superstition down. I'm not going to allow you to think that an angel coming and stirring it. I've seen, if you've seen any art and, and stuff like that, you, you can see pictures that ancient Christian artists wrote uh, or painted. Uh, that sh- Some of them get kind of, I mean, these are right by the velvet Elvis on the side of the road. <clears throat> a couple of them. Serious. You see an angel diving. In, it's, it's a little comical. You see an angel, that some of the art, I mean, you know, people, different tastes, different, diving into the water. What I want to suggest to you is this, as I've read this and meditated and looked at this, Jesus doesn't correct him. That's not the way we operate. If we find anybody that says they believe in God, we've got to straighten them out right there. Instead of just saying, believe. Let me tell you something. A friend of mine pastors a church in San Angelo, Texas, where there are lots of heathens. That's where my family's from. And Harold was a very, uh, uh, very uh, successful businessman in the, in the community. And his name's Harold Watkins. And Harold uh, uh, was working in ministry and kept going and things just, um, you know, <clears throat> kept going and going. And finally said, Let, let's start a church. And Harold, <clears throat> very wealthy. Very well. He said, we're going to start a church uh, for the people that nobody else wants. Drug addicts and prostitutes. And I thought, you know, I'm San Angelo, Texas, that's where I grew up. You know, there's gangs and drugs and prostitution and sex in San Angelo. I mean, I know there's a lot of cowboys and pickup trucks, but I, you know, I, I was just, Harold, really, that's going on there? Yeah. So they decided to, you know, start a church that would reach to people that other churches kind of weren't interested in. Harold and them were in different places, and you know, like you have to do when you're doing a church plant, you got to find a place that lets you stay there for cheap. And I, so they find this building that Verizon had had; it was huge, and uh, they thought this is downtown; it'd be a wonderful place, but it's too expensive. And uh, Harold told me the story. He said, uh, "You know, we began to pray that if God would give us favor, uh, if He would uh, cause us to have that building." And he said, Cliff, uh, there's a lady in our church who makes her living in the evening. (laughs) And she's been in jail and out of jail. She's a prostitute. And he said, she's come to our church and has felt loved and accepted and just loves to come. And he said, you know, some Sunday she's in there because she's in jail. He said, uh, when we were out there one day, she saw me. Now think about this. this. This just sounds so much like Jesus. You know, when people were in trouble, or sinners, or prostitutes, they ran to Jesus. They run from us. Because they know we're going to straighten them out. Harold said she ran up to him and said, Brother Harold, Brother Harold... I want you to know I've been walking around this building and I'm claiming it for the church in the name of Jesus. We're going to get it and I just declare it to be so in His name. And she goes, Amen. (laughs) You know what? They got the building. 
Now, I, I don't know if her prayer in claiming it, there were other people praying. But I'll tell you this, Harold didn't try to straighten her up right there. He didn't try to correct her and say, well, you know, the way you're living, you can't be praying too well. Right? See, here's a person who, for whatever reason, could it be history, could be the family they grew up in. You know, we just don't take that into consideration. Maybe they didn't have what you had. Maybe, maybe they weren't born with a silver spoon. As I've said before, and some of those said, maybe they weren't born on third base and think they hit a home run. I'm just fascinated that Jesus doesn't address this. Because here are people in need and in pain, and as it says here again, trustfully looking to heaven for help. Maybe they got a messed up view of God. Maybe they've got a messed up view of Christian living. But they're looking to heaven for help. I know in my own life, I've been so quick. It's kind of my work. That when somebody says something or explains something and it isn't all correct, in me, that corrector goes off. And, and, and I've just had to try to learn, like Jesus, to, to just say, do you want to get well? I, I, I'm not going to argue with you about this. Is it an angel? Is it not an angel? Is it just the bubbling of the water? What is it? Because these people are looking to heaven. They, they don't know what to do. You ever felt like that? There are lots of people like that. I've known people that are just mastered by alcohol and every night go to bed praying to God that He would help them. You say, well, help. I'm not going there. The, the, the idea of people not having it all together, not understanding everything, is this superstition? Is this just magic? Jesus never touches it. And just says this. You want to get well? When you are at the end of your resources, when you and I don't have all the answers, but we trustfully look to heaven, for help, Jesus will respond. I don't care what you know or what you understand or how much you don't understand or how much you don't know. When we trustfully look to Him, and we may not understand Him even more than anybody else. It's a bit bizarre here that Jesus doesn't respond to this tradition or this mystery. He just says, do you want to get well? Now, I'm going to look here for a second. I've got to hurry. Jesus reveals the heart of religion gone bad. There's just a lot of material, but Jesus said, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. And immediately the man became well. I'm interested in this. Just be careful here. There's a rhythm here, also a sequence. He said, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately the man became well. And he picked up his pallet and walked. Here's the concern I have. You'll hear some teaching that says, do something and that will make you well. Right? Act of faith. I have a friend that he wanted his wife to be healed from diabetes. He said, we're going to do something and God will make quit taking her medicine. That's crazy. See, see we, we think sometimes that what we do makes God act. Right? I'm going to do something dramatic. I'm going to do something and then God will have to act. It's interesting to me, the sequence is this. Jesus said, you're well. 
get up, take your pallet. Then it says, immediately the man became well, and then he picked up his pallet. I'm not doing something to get well. I'm doing it because I am well. You with me? This teaching can get way off whack here. Where we think if we'll do something dramatic, we'll force God to do something. I'm not well, so I'm going to claim it, and I'm going to step out and do this. And all of a sudden, instead of because Jesus said it, then he becomes well, then he picks it up. Mary Jane? Yeah. yeah the, she's asking the question recording, is that to step out in faith and believe? I think it can be. I am very concerned that it becomes um, what we would call, uh, I just forgot the word. Uh, 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 it's where I'm forcing God to do something. I, it's not because He's done something, now I'm acting. I'm forcing Him. It's presumption. David said, keep your servant from presumptuous sins. So it isn't that he has to do something now to get well. Jesus said, you're well, pick it up. And it says there, he immediately became well, then he picked it up. Now I know that's a, dis- a, 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 a careful distinction here. But you're going to hear teaching that's going to incite you at times to think that if you'll do something, then God will act. I want to suggest the model here is God acts and then you know it. You with me? Does that make sense? Be careful here. Be careful here. Now, Jesus does that, and then what happens? The Pharisees show up. Watch this. So they were saying to him, the man who was cured, it's the Sabbath, and it's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. Kind of miss the point. You know, here's the idea. In the Mishnah, it says this, that a man cannot carry his couch. It's a sin on the Sabbath. You can't carry your couch on the Sabbath. Here, listen to this. This is how crazy it got. However, if there was a live person on your couch, you could carry the couch. Because the couch was secondary to the live person. <laughs> that you weren't actually carrying the person. You're carrying the couch, but there's a... I'm just telling you what it says, okay? You know, th- th- this idea of the Sabbath, that, that this idea, that, that what happens is that these Pharisees are discussing the niceties of the Sabbath instead of understanding that a man has just been healed. There's a book, I don't know if I put it on your outline there, I'm reading it, and it's uh, wearing me out a little bit. But you see, what ha- is it on there? Yeah. Accidental Pharisees. Do you see it there on the handout? By a guy named Larry Osborne. Larry makes the observation here and other places that most of us who become Pharisaical, I'm going to try to explain what that means here in like two minutes, is that we don't start out like that. What happens is it's zeal and energy for God that goes bad. It's zeal and energy for God. We love Him. We want to serve Him. We want to honor Him. But it begins to lose the heart of the man. I wrote it like this. Legalism separates the heart from religion because it's willing only to accept what is outward. If you can do what's outward, you're fine. We don't care what the condition of your heart is. Legalism separates the heart from religion and it's willing to accept what that is just what is outward. So if I'm not carrying a couch, I must be obeying the Sabbath. Inside of my heart, though, there's envy, gossip, hatred. Legalism will always make much out of the small matters and leave the great issues untouched. So we can hate a person because they're theologically unsound. We can be unkind to a person because they're a sinner. The, the, the struggle here that Jesus shows with these guys, they have lost the heart of what religion is supposed to be about. It's compassion and love for another. 
Legalism will always pull the heart right out of you. Watch yourself. I've watched this in me. Watch yourself. I remember some years ago, real quick, I was watching, I, I, I didn't watch, uh, not NYP, yeah, maybe NYP, Jimmy Smits, help me here. L, no, the other one. Nope. See, we're checking your TV knowledge here. NYPD Blue, that's it. Yeah. There's an episode toward the end of that where he's dying. Remember this? Jimmy Smits in NYPD is dying. He apparently has HIV infection. And in that final scene as I'm watching this, I'm watching him and then thinking, well, what'd you do? How'd that happen to you? And I heard that in my heart. And I thought, Cliff, are you that calloused? That is the son of some, some mother. I know, I know it's just a TV program. But that's the dad of some kid. Listen, when we can alleviate ourselves of human suffering, and what under the guise of religious activity, we have accidentally become a Pharisee. We didn't start out like that. We didn't start out like that. That zeal, that interest, that desire. So Jesus shows here how they've completely lost contact with God. What? Because you're breaking... A man has been healed after 38 years of being ill... And you're worried about that he's carrying something on the Sabbath. And remember Jesus said, that's why I said at the very beginning, he participated as he could. Jesus said, man wasn't made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man. Legalism. It'll pull the heart out of it. Well, I got to hurry. Then this final thing. This is interesting. Oh, there's the book. Jesus reveals an awareness we often don't have. Toward the end of this, the man tells the Pharisees, What's happened? Jesus finds him in the temple. Here's an interesting thought. The reason this guy's probably at the temple is because he can. For 38 years, if he's been lame, you can't go to the temple. If he has some skin disorder, he's sick, can't go to the temple. This guy apparently, right after getting healed, heads right to the temple to be able to honor and praise. It's just fascinating. Jesus finds him there and he says this, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. You know, what is the worst that could happen? Now, I want to suggest you go to John 9 later. We'll see that later. Jesus does not associate illness with sin. That's a Jewish thought. If you live holy and righteous, you'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. And a guy. <laughs> Jesus comes against that. That sin is not causing illness. When He says this, and, and, and the tense in the verb is this. Really, it says, it says anymore. It, it's a, we call it a present imperative. It means this. Don't keep on sinning. In other words, don't keep living in sin. Whatever that meant. Whatever Jesus understood. I'm not sure what that meant. I don't know what that was. But don't keep on sinning lest that nothing worse happens. And what could be worse than 38 years of sickness and illness? 
Yeah, I think, I think there's an issue here that we don't often think about, that Jesus is concerned not only about our physical wellness, but our spiritual wellness. Can you remember the last time that you prayed because you were sick? I got you know, sick last week. I was praying all week. I got scared of food. First time in my life. I'm not afraid anymore. <laughs> I recovered. Had a donut this morning, man. Booyah! And I'm going to own some Mexican food today. But uh, anyway. Do you ever pray for your spiritual health? Do you, do you ever pray that you would grow in Christ's life? Mostly our prayers are about our physical needs. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that. But would it be worse as you keep on sinning? Keep on sinning, keep on sinning? And spend eternity separated from God? I, th- I think that's an obvious answer. But the question is for us, do, do we take our spiritual health as seriously as we do our physical health? I'll, I'll just tell you this right. You know, I'm, I was thinking this morning, I've got an, an, a, a, a physical coming up. I'm not trying to make you more, but you know, John Wesley, a guy I kind of know a little bit, every Sunday night would take a few minutes to kind of just go over his week and ask God if there was anything that he could learn from that, any way that he could grow from that, in any way he could go forward. He practiced that all his life. Every Sunday evening, a little downtime, to take some time to say, how is it? Now, I'm not trying to make you paranoid or spiritual hypochondriac either. You know, ah, how spiritual am I? Ah, am I doing okay? You know, that, I'm not talking about spiritual hypochondria. I am saying that sometimes we take care of our physical bodies better than we ever think about our spiritual life. What about that? What, what? Maybe do it once a month. Put it on your calendar once a month to say, I'm just going to kind of look back over the month. I'm not going to get morbid. I'm just going to, okay, God, is there some pattern here that you could help me with? Jesus said, don't do that lest something worse happen to keep on sinning, to keep on rebelling. Well, I, I've got to let you go. But let me ask you to consider this. Consider the way you value your own spiritual health, your own spiritual growth. Is it a priority or does it just show up occasionally? It could be something that would add some real value to your living to ask God to help me to say, how can I understand better how I can grow spiritually instead of living a life of failure? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, there's a lot of stuff in this passage. And I know that uh, you've got more to teach us, and I pray that as people reflect on this and look at this on their own time, that we all might be those who understand what it is this conversation teaches us, all these things about you. We're still amazed at you. We're, we're still uh, intrigued by you and want to learn to live our lives more fully with you. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. See you next week.